Thank you so much, Sam. Good morning, everyone. Goodness me, I just feel like Jesus as the Prince of Peace has just taken his rightful place in my spirit, in my mind, in my soul, in my heart once again. I hope you're feeling that too, wherever you're watching from. Um, thank you so much, Barney and Andy. That was just such a special time. Um, and as Sam said, we are going to be um, kicking off a new teaching series this morning. And we are going to uh, journey through together over these coming weeks into the summer months through the book of Acts. But if I can just start off by being honest with you for a moment, um, this morning feels pretty new to me in a couple of ways. Uh, firstly, I've never opened a teaching series before, so it's new in that sense. But secondly, um, when I have been here in this context, it's, um, I've usually been speaking on some aspect of the victory of Jesus, uh, the freedom that he has won for us, um, what it looks like for us to be a transformed people, to be um, changed and transformed to be like him. And it is my greatest privilege to talk about that kind of stuff. And it is um, something I'm deeply committed to pursuing for myself and encourage us in together, hopefully. Um, but what I want to share this morning draws on a desire to learn that has burned in me for several years now. And like so many of you, I want to be a thoughtful and a diligent reader of, of this the Bible, this um, incredible collection of ancient texts written thousands of years ago in languages and cultures so very different from our own. And although I am only scratching the surface of what I know will be a lifelong exploration, I want to point you to a resource that I have found and still find profoundly helpful. They're called Bible Project. Um, I know a bunch of you will be familiar with them already, but they create a whole range of resources from um, a varying depth. So from animated videos that look at sort of um, word studies or themes or books of the Bible right through to online Bible classes. So I am nearly finishing one on the Hebrew Scriptures. It's an 18 hour course. It's taken me well over a year to get through it. So I'm taking slowly but surely to a new depth there. But um, it's incredible teaching, incredible insight into scripture. And their resources on Acts are also really helpful. So they've got a podcast series on Acts. They've got video resources on Acts. So I'd really encourage you to um, check them out. But the underlying principle in which they approach scripture is that it is a unified story that leads to Jesus. And I have found that concept profoundly helpful as I have read the pages of these books a unified story that leads to Jesus. And it's at that point that I want us to start this morning before we open to the book of Acts and, and read the opening scenes today. So we're going to think big, first of all, from a scriptural point of view. Then we're going to zoom in and focus on the book of Acts in particular. And then we're just going to take a little step back and think about what Luke might be more broadly communicating to us as followers of Jesus. So are you ready? Let's see how this goes, shall we? Um, so at its broadest level, the Bible starts at creation, where God creates a beautiful garden that we're told about in Genesis. And his image-bearing humans, who were created to um, co-rule and partner with God's good world, then participate in the ruin of it and in the ruin of their relationship with him. And the whole narrative arc from that point on is about how God will bring about a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth that is healed and fully restored. The first chapters of the Bible have this incredible universal focus, but then from Genesis 12 onwards, it shifts gear. The narrative changes and it focuses in on one man and his family, 
Abraham and the family that come from that line, the family of Israel. And we find out that God is setting in motion a long-term plan to bring about a new creation, somehow using this one man and his family line to restore his divine blessing to all the nations, to the whole world. Yet, as we know, time and time again, the type of human that is needed to participate in this divine rescue falls short. Abraham, Moses, Joshua, David, Each of them provide, if you like, silhouettes of the type of person needed, but none of them quite fill the portrait. Then the prophets come into play. We have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos. There's a whole bunch of them, a whole bunch more. And they accuse Israel, but they do give hope that God is still on course to bring about this promised new creation. God will send a king, we find out, a king from the line of David, who will be the one who will bring Israel back into true faithfulness. The Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament, they then come to an end and this promised king hasn't come. And then in our Bibles that are neatly ordered for us and together in one book, we turn the page and we come to a man. We're introduced to a man named Jesus who is proclaiming that the time has come and the kingdom of God has come near. Jesus' basic message was that he was that promised king from the line of David who would come to lead and be the representative of Israel and do for them that they were unable to do for themselves. So the silhouettes that, that were provided by the Hebrew scriptures, that were provided by Joshua and Abraham and Moses and David, they are fully filled by the face of Jesus of Nazareth. God is entering the story in the person of Jesus and becomes the kind of human that he has called humanity to be. And he is that on our behalf, which is just amazing. Yet ultimately, Israel is so confronted by their own corruption that they crucify their king. Yet unexpectedly, the death of Jesus is the gateway to this new creation promise. As he absorbs humanity's sin, into himself on the cross. The cross is the place where love and justice meet and where the judge becomes judged. Three days later, something even more unexpected happened that even the followers of Jesus did not see coming. Jesus was raised from the dead and vindicated as Israel's king. They encounter the risen Jesus, firstly on the road to Emmaus, which John unpacked for us a couple of weeks ago. And the disciples could then look back on the Hebrew scriptures and see that this is where the story was always heading. So why start here? Why why spend time thinking about this? Well, because as we go into Acts, we need to recognise that it is at this point that we're entering the biblical narrative. And And we need to see that the disciples are also placing themselves within this big biblical story and see themselves as being active participants in the continuation of it. And we, as 21st century readers, we need to be on the same page, literally and metaphorically. So... Let's zoom in, shall we? Let's have a look at Acts and see what Luke has to say. So he's a Gentile doctor. He's a travelling companion of Paul. We're going to focus on um, verses 1 through 9 this morning. Um, We'll take little chunks at a time and just see what Luke is presenting to us here. So verse 1, first of all. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. I realise there's a comma there. It might be frustrating that I'm stopping mid-sentence, but there are some significant things for us to know already. 
So we begin from the vantage point of Luke writing to a patron, Theophilus. And some scholars have wondered whether Theophilus is in fact in the legal profession and is using Luke's writings as part of his defence for Paul's later trials. Another thought is that Theophilus, which, whose name means beloved by God or God lover, is purely a symbolic character so that any follower of Jesus can insert themselves into being the audience. Most scholars agree, though, that Theophilus was um, a wealthy follower of Jesus and he is someone who has enough resources to sponsor the writings and research of this apostolic scroll. Either way, we find out that Luke is writing a multi-volume work. So he references his first book. That's what we know as the Gospel of Luke. And here he's uniting the two works. So volume one, he says, is what Jesus began to do and teach. Volume two, the clear implication, this one, the book of Acts, is what Jesus continues to do and teach. And so in just a few short words within Luke's opening sentence, we find out one of the most important messages that Luke is wanting us to understand as we open this book. The work and the teaching of Jesus has not finished. It hasn't finished. Tom Wright, who is a New Testament scholar, he expands on this importance really helpfully in um, his super accessible commentaries on Acts. They're called Acts for Everyone. Um, and he says this, the mysterious presence of Jesus haunts the whole story. He is announced as King and Lord, not as an increasingly distant memory, but as a living and powerful reality, a person who can be known and loved, obeyed and followed, a person who continues to act in the real world. A person who continues to act in the real world right now. We felt it this morning as Jesus, Prince of Peace, is here through the Spirit, as Sam was talking about. That, Luke is telling us, is what this book is going to be all about. So let's carry on and see what he continues with. He presented himself alive to them uh, excuse me, let me go from the beginning. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. We call this book um, the Acts of the Apostles. That's what's written at the top of my Bible. It'll be what's written at the top of your Bibles. But yet, based on these sentences, Luke is really framing this, this next work that he is writing as the Acts of Jesus through the Holy Spirit in the disciples. The Acts of Jesus through the Holy Spirit in the disciples. Now, I realise that isn't a snappy title, but I think it's a really helpful way for us to understand and approach this book that it is the acts of Jesus that we're reading about through the Holy Spirit in the disciples. You see, we're to understand that the 40 days Jesus was with the disciples isn't the end of the teaching of Jesus. It actually opens up a new horizon, a new way of Jesus acting and moving through humanity, through the Spirit. And that's why Luke can talk about this book as being a continuation of what Jesus does and teaches. And there's an emphasis notice of what Luke places, um, of, that Luke places on the evidence of Jesus's resurrection. We're told that he presented many proofs to the disciples because this had never happened before. A dead man risen, apart from with Lazarus, but in terms of the Messiah, a dead man risen with evidence of his suffering. Jesus ensured that his disciples could be in no doubt 
that he was the king who had been risen. Because without the resurrection, there would be no gospel. Just a memory of a great but ultimately failed teacher and would-be Messiah. The resurrection of Jesus, his risen body in which heaven and earth have met, is absolutely fundamental to Luke's vantage point and to Luke's perspective as he writes this book. And in the midst of this, we find out what Jesus was talking to the disciples about, the kingdom of God. So tuck that away for a moment because we're kind of going to come back to that theme shortly. But let's carry on first of all. Verses four to five. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptised with water, but you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And here we have some repetition with the end of his gospel. Now, remember, we're not in the days of printed books where everything is neatly put together for us in a helpful manner. We are in the days of separate scrolls. And a common way to link two separate but united scrolls together is to link the ending of the previous scroll with the beginning of the next scroll. And so we see that there are some thematic links going on here. So at the end of Luke, his first book, he says that Jesus tells his disciples to stay in Jerusalem until they are filled with power. Now, in the beginning of Acts, we, he picks up on this theme again, but he expands on it, saying that this power is the very presence of God, the Holy Spirit. And in the meantime, they are to wait. Then the disciples have a question about the kingdom. Remember the very thing that Jesus had been teaching on for these 40 days. And they ask this. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. That to me seems a bit of an irritating answer because it's not very clear. Why is Jesus not just telling them when the time frame is going to be? And on first reading, the apostles um, still seem to be understanding the kingdom of God as some kind of political power, this rescue plan of God that has a nationalist agenda. Really, is, is what they're asking, is it now, is it right now that Israel will be freed from Rome, this oppressive power over them, so that our political and our territorial kingdom can be restored? Is that what they're asking? And if that is their question, you have to wonder how skilled a communicator and teacher Jesus was because they have just had a 40-day lesson on the kingdom of God from the risen Son of God. I don't think that's what's going on with this question. So let's just unpack this a bit more and see if we can figure out what's going on. What are the disciples asking here? At the end of Luke's gospel account, he makes it clear that the risen Jesus opened the disciples' minds to understanding the Hebrew scriptures that his suffering, his death and his resurrection is the fulfilment of those Hebrew scriptures in order that repentance for the forgiveness of sins can be proclaimed to all the nations. It's pretty clear that this kingdom has nothing to do with political power or nationalism. So if the disciples knew that the kingdom of God wasn't a political ideology and it wasn't about overthrowing, overthrowing powers or authority of the day through military force, so overthrowing Caesar, overthrowing um, Rome, which seems they must do since we're told that Jesus opened their minds to understanding, what do they mean by that phrase to restore the kingdom to Israel? Let's go back to where we started this morning, thinking about the big narrative arc of the Bible 
and recognizing the point at which we are being invited into the story here. We talked about how restoring God's rule over Israel is a really important theme in the prophets. It's how the promise to Abraham always worked, that God would bless that family, that family line of Israel, and through that family line of Israel, he would bless all the nations of the earth. So God needs to repair his relationship with Israel first. It's the story of restoring one people group within the big story of restoring all of humanity. If they're thinking in that sense, then asking, okay, you're the risen king from the line of David that has been promised. So when are you going to restore Israel so that she can be a light to the nation, so that she can be that royal priesthood that has been prophesied and promised? That's actually the most natural question that you would ask. And Jesus' response as he continues actually isn't a dodge at all. And it really helps us understand what he's saying if we understand what the disciples are asking to begin with. So verse eight, Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So Jesus might not be telling them the specific time frame, but he is telling them the sequence of the restoration promise, the outpouring of the spirit. And then through that power, they themselves will be witnesses throughout all Israel and then to the nations. And it's important to realize that these words of Jesus are lifted right out of the prophetic books. Can you hear the themes that are coming out again and again? Scriptures that Jesus has taught on and enabled the disciples to understand. So the promise of the Spirit being poured out is found in Isaiah 32, in Joel 2, and in Ezekiel 36. The idea of the new covenant people becoming witnesses is from Isaiah 43, and that these witnesses will go from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth is from Isaiah 49. I'd really encourage you to go and check out those scriptures, read the promises that were prophesied and are being fulfilled by Jesus. And what does it mean for these followers to be witnesses? Well, at the resurrection and his ascension, which we're about to read, Jesus is being enthroned as Israel's Messiah, as king over all the earth, over all the nations. In the first century, when a new king was established, um, messengers or heralds would go out through, throughout the king's land and proclaim that king is now on the throne. That is what Jesus was asking them to do. That's what they were to be witness to. And the response of Jesus here is worth noting on another level. I find this fascinating because it was what Luke seems to design the rest of this book on. So the fact that these um, apostles will receive power and will be witnesses throughout Jerusalem, we find that in chapters two through to seven. That they will then be witnesses in Judea and Samaria, which is um, kind of another way of just saying the historic tribes of, tribes of Israel. That's chapters eight through 12. And then that they will be um, witnesses to the end of the earth, to the nations. That's chapters 13 onwards, the missionary journeys, and we see Paul ending in Rome. What then follows is something that I don't think we talk about all that much, the ascension of Jesus. And it's something that Luke describes really very briefly and simply in verse 9, which is going to be the final verse we look at this morning. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. That's it. He was lifted up, a cloud took him out of their sight. I think the ascension of Jesus often gets underplayed when we think of his life. Though for those um, 
Christian traditions which follow the church calendar, Ascension Sunday is built into the Remembrance Days. And as it goes, today is Ascension Sunday, following Ascension Day, which was on Thursday, which was the 40th day of Easter. Yet the Ascension of Jesus is a really significant pivot moment as it's the moment when Jesus's mission goes on to its next stage from launching the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven to him being seated at the right hand of the Father. So why is it that happens? The disciples see Jesus being lifted up, he's received by a cloud and then he disappears. Like that's really strange, isn't it? That's not just me, like that is odd imagery going on. What, what are we meant to do with that? How can we understand that? And where are some connections that we're meant to make that actually really help unpack the significance of what's going on here? Well, there's a couple of things I want to pull out. The first is this phrase, lifted up. It is one of the key phrases throughout the book of Isaiah, which culminates in the suffering servant poem of Isaiah 52, which says that the son, the servant will be high, will be lifted up and exalted. And Jesus is lifted up three times on the cross, in his resurrection, and right now, his ascension. They all work together and are aspects of his enthronement with the ascension clearly being the culminating part as he is now seated at the right hand of God. The second link that we're meant to make here is to Daniel 7, which if you haven't explored that book before is, is a strange prophetic book full of really odd imagery, but actually incredible um, with the help of some commentaries because I don't really understand it by myself. But it describes one like a son of man being lifted up and brought on the clouds and presented before the ancient of days before God and sharing in his rule and reign over the nations. There's that phrase again, his rule and reign over the nations. We're to understand that this prophetic vision of Daniel identifying a son of man ascending, uniting the divine and the human, uniting heaven and earth is being completely fulfilled by Jesus in this moment of his ascension. And then we leave the disciples waiting waiting to receive this power that Jesus had told them about. The singular, extraordinary event that would give Christianity its early momentum following the ascension of Jesus. Pentecost, the spirit coming. And San is going to unpack that for us next week. In these few verses then, we see that the book of Acts is telling the story of how a marginal, small, messianic Jewish sect became an international, multi-ethnic movement. The expansion of Christianity from Jerusalem to Rome is really a remarkable story. Humanly speaking, Christianity had really little going for it at this moment. No money, no proven leaders, no technological tools to help spread the gospel message. And it really faced enormous obstacles. It was new, it reframed ancient prophecies in a vastly unexpected way, and it was subject to intense hatred and persecution. Yet, it would become, as we know it today, the most ethnically and culturally diverse religious movement in human history. And if we've given our allegiance to Jesus, if we consider ourselves to be followers of Jesus, there's a historical humility we're being invited into here because we're part of this story too. The fact that we're here, that we're talking about these things, is because of a, G a conversation that Jesus had in an upper room with a small group of people and a promise he made. What we've read this morning are really critical scenes in human history. 
So, let's take a step back out of this story. We're going to zoom out now and just think a bit more broadly about what Luke might be communicating to us here as followers of Jesus. You see, the book of Acts isn't simply a diary of events of the early Christians. Although it is on one level absolutely the story of the early church, it cannot possibly include every detail of every day. The voice that we're hearing narrate the story is a voice that is already decades into the Jesus movement and is retrospectively writing about it. And so Luke has been careful and intentional in crafting this work as he chooses to tell particular events and particular people to focus on. And we are going to unpack some of those events and people over the following weeks. So he has a mission to tell the story in a way that, just like his gospel, communicates the meaning that he is wanting us to understand. And from his gospel account, from the gospel of Luke, we know that he was interested in showing the social and the economic implications of Jesus' kingdom message. He emphasises the upside-down value system of the kingdom of God, the inclusion of the poor, the inclusion of the outcast, the inclusion of the widow, of the stranger. And he includes more teaching about wealth and resources than any of the other gospels. He emphasises the role of the spirit more than any of the other gospels as well. So he includes lots of little introductions to stories like, and in the power of the spirit, Jesus went too. But when you look at the parallel story in Matthew or Mark, it doesn't include that phrase. So already in the gospel of Luke, we can see that he is emphasising themes that we can expect to be echoed, expanded on and repeated in Acts. This is a book about Jesus. He is showing Jesus as the new spirit-empowered human, a king and a priest with a totally different value system who is going to then empower his followers to be the same kind of people. And what do those followers do in the power of the spirit as the earliest roots of Christianity start to take shape? How do they display this radically different value system of the kingdom of God and how they relate to one another and how they relate to their culture, and how they relate to the power structures of that day, to Caesar, to Rome. And how do we, as followers of Jesus, in our culture, in our time, how do we, particularly actually this time right now, as we are about to emerge from our post-pandemic world, with more freedom, with fewer restrictions, and we may be questioning what we want to prioritise, how do we display this same kingdom in our lives? How are we faithful witnesses in the story that we are also a part of? That's what we're going to explore together over these next few weeks and months. And I cannot wait. I am so excited for it. And I hope you're excited too.